Hey everybody, welcome to episode 4 of JR Plays. I'm your host, JR Honeycutt, and I'm excited to talk about this week of games. This weekend I headed to St. Louis with my buddy Cody Lewis, a designer in Waitress Games, our game studio, to Jamie Stegmeier's Design Day, where we played some games, tested some of our own games, and hung out with some folks we hadn't seen in a while, some of them since last year at Design Day. This week I played... Karuba, Sushi Go Party, Captain Sonar, the turn-based version, Secret Hitler Twice, Codenames Twice, My Fair Princess, and Jamaica. All of my gaming this week was on this trip to St. Louis, so this is going to be a story about that trip and the people we played with and also the games that we played. Uh, new games to me include Jamaica, My Fair Princess, Sushi Go Party, and Secret Hitler. So the first one of these that I played was Sushi Go Party. We learned this one on Thursday night when we got to our friend Melissa's house in St. Louis. She's a doctor there in St. Louis and has a huge, beautiful home and lets us stay every year for the design day. And it's really cool. So we got there and we played some games with her the first night that we were there. Uh, of those, Sushi Go Party was one that I hadn't played before and she needed to learn it to teach it during Jamie's design day on Saturday. So it was a perfect opportunity to bust out Phil Walker Harding's expansion or reimagining or bigger version of Game Rights Sushi Go. This game is so cool. I'm a big fan of Sushi Go because I think that it's just like the perfect like peanut of a drafting game. Uh, it's like a kernel, right? Like it's just drafting and that's it. And if you wanted to explain to somebody what drafting meant, you could just put Sushi Go on the table, teach them how to play, and you'd be done. And from there you might move on to a game like Seven Wonders or Medieval Academy or any number of other games that use drafting, including like Magic the Gathering. And despite the fact that it's simple, it's still super fun. I've heard some people say that it's not complicated enough or that it's not enough complexity, but I really enjoy the experience every time I play. So, Sushi Go Party, and there's an exclamation point in there somewhere, uh, same designer, same publisher, all the same cards, except there's even more cards. And it's pretty cool, if you've played Sushi Go, you're drafting different pieces of sushi and different pieces of, like, seafood and passing cards around the table and making sets or trying to make little runs and things like that. And your score at the end of three rounds of drafting is equal to whatever your points are from those things. And sometimes you're collecting cards that stay with you the entire three rounds, but most of them go back at the end of every round. In Sushi Go, at the end of every round, you discard all the cards you drafted, except for the ones that stay, and then they just like go back in the box and you do new cards. Well, Sushi Go Party seems like somebody figured out, wait, we're not reusing those cards and we could be. So they sort of made fewer of the cards that exist, but then they changed the rules so that they get shuffled back into the deck every round, which makes total sense. And then they use the extra components to make all sorts of different cards. And not only are there different cards, but the way that you construct the game every time, you actually make little meals, like little bento boxes, kind of, out of the different kinds of sushi. So you might have some dessert, some sushi, some appetizers, some different things, and it's really neat. So you've got all sorts of different cards. There's a card that, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but like if you have one of them, it's worth one point. If you have two of them, it's worth six points. If you have three of them or more, they're worth zero points each. And I actually messed up in the first game we played, the only game we played, and drafted like five of them. Uh, thinking that they were actually the dumplings, which just get better and better and better the more you take. I looked down, and I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I screwed that up in the first round. But even so, I still tied for the victory, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so Sushi Go Party. If you like Sushi Go, you have to buy this game. It is in every conceivable way strictly more fun than actual Sushi Go. I don't think that Sushi Go has anything this game doesn't, and this game has all sorts of other stuff. And if you want to just play regular Sushi Go, you can. But you can also add these amazing things to it. The setup is cool. The components are cool. Little cardboard tokens. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. I'm going to go buy this. I'll probably give my copy of Sushi Go away to somebody who likes it and go buy Sushi Go Party. Love this game. Uh, I don't know how to rate it. 10 of 10 for what it is. I was so happy with it. It was just the best version of what I expected. Sushi Go Party. 
a new game that I played during the Design Day weekend on Saturday with some folks that were there, strangers to me, but were really cool, uh, was Jamaica by Bruno Cafala, Malcolm Braff, and Sebastian Pauchon, uh, published by Asmodee. Jamaica, I think, is from 2007. It's pretty old. And I've heard of it before, but I never had a chance to actually play it. But I've heard that it was like a nice, light, pirates on an island kind of thing. Well, here's what you do in Jamaica. Uh, you have a pirate ship, and it has like five holds in it. And you're trying to use items that you pick up and things that you earn by playing cards to race all the way around the island of Jamaica and be the first person to like cross the finish line, which means you've made it all the way around 40 or so spaces around the board. Uh, while you're doing this, you might stop and pick up treasure chests or like enter the same space as somebody else and fight them. But generally, it's just a race. But the amount of space you get to move is based on die rolls. Each turn, the person who like is the first player rolls two dice, two six-sided dice. And they choose one for night, one for day. Uh, so it could be like a six and a three. You put one on this, put the six in the day, put the three in the night, whatever order you want, that's fine. Then every player chooses one of three cards from their hand. Everyone has identical decks, I think they're identical. Uh, and on the card, there's just two symbols, like a move, or gain coins, or gain cannons, or gain food, or move backwards. And one of those two symbols is in each corner, night and day. So everybody plays a card and then executes something. So like if I chose to do food at night and movement and day, then I would gain like three food if that was the night or that was the day dice, and then like move six if that was the night die. So basically the values and also the order and the card you play determines what you do. Super nifty little system. I think that if I'd played this as one of the first games that I played, I might have said like, oh, this is one of my favorite games. Uh, but in reality, I think for pirating, I probably prefer Black Fleet over Jamaica, but it was still really cool to play. One thing I noticed was that um, as I was racing and racing towards the end of the game to make it to the finish line, I was right behind the player who was like the first player overall. Uh, and we had sort of been going back and forth trying to figure out who was going to cross the finish line first. Well, he had the only double move card in his hand that lets you move twice, move forward twice uh, in the game. And all the other cards just like maybe let you do it once or many of them not at all. And I knew he had it and I was hoping that he would like roll a certain die value that would let me cross before him anyways. Totally didn't happen. He totally beat me. Uh, but the cool thing about our game is every single time we rolled combat, uh, there's a six-sided die for combat, it's like 2, 4, 8, 10, 12, and then like automatic win. Uh, every single roll in our game except for one, so like nine rolls, was just the automatic win in combat. Like we just were just blowing each other out of the water. But in Jamaica, when you win, you don't like blow their ship up. You just take like one hold worth of stuff from them and replace it, you know, with one of the things from your hold. So maybe you take their coins or whatever, and coins are the victory points at the end, which is pretty cool. Uh, but the combat wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it might be based on the theme. Still, Jamaica is pretty cool. I wouldn't buy it. There are other games in my collection I would rather play if I was going to do something like that. I think I'd rather actually play Merchants and Marauders if I wanted to go to Pirate Town or maybe Libertalia. But still, glad that I played it. Now I've got Jamaica in my gaming vocabulary. Uh, another new game was My Fair Princess, designed by Koro, uh, one name only designer, and published by Manifest Destiny here in the U.S., I think it was a Kickstarter game, I'm not sure. The game wasn't really explained to me, I sort of sat down, Jamie asked me to play it, so I jumped in and played uh, with a stranger who was teaching it, who was really enthusiastic about it, and he even said, and I think this is the sweetest thing I've ever heard, hey guys, I know this game isn't great, but I figured nobody else would have ever heard of it before and I wanted just to do something new, so let's play it. And I can really respect that, I've got games in my collection that nobody has heard of, or you know, you guys have probably heard of it, but lots of people haven't. And oftentimes, I'm the guy who's bringing something to the table that the players haven't heard of before, so I totally get where he's coming from. So that was My Fair Princess. Now, here's the thing. The game was not very good. Not very good. But Cody and I talked about this at length, and there's some good stuff to get out of it, so I'm still going to discuss it. Uh, also, I played it, which means I've got to talk about it here, because that's what this show is about. So in My Fair Princess, you are a parent who is guiding your daughter through life and sending her to do things like earn money through her job, go to school and study, 
go to the arena and like fight to become a better fighter all with the hopes that your daughter will have like the best possible life when the game ends and then you'll get like a, like a rating that tells you like what she went on to do when she was an adult and it's like an anime style game all anime style art and the theme and the effects were all like oh she's cute oh she's bookish oh like she has a big arm and she fights with it or whatever like very anime style and i don't know that world well enough to even use the words correctly but it was definitely of the style that was like hey it is totally okay that we're like sending our daughters to go do all these things the theme was a little strange especially for me not an anime fan i mean it's fine but like that's not what i watch and it's not really what i interact with and part of me was like scratching my head like is this offensive i'm not sure if this is offensive or not but it was okay on top of that it was a super super frustrating worker placement game where on your turn you put one of your workers on between three and six tracks depending on how far into the game you were and then other players could just like bump you from that track if they wanted to um if you wanted to like power up your actions they could then cancel that and you would have lost your resources whatever you spent to power it up uh but also a cool part of it was that if you went to a space as a, with a worker to gather resources uh which is like going to school to get knowledge or whatever the more people that also went there, the more all of you got. So it was like an accumulative effect for how many people went to a space, all of you got more resources, and you could pay to get even more. I thought that was really neat. There's also a card system that gave you your attributes, a deck of 36 cards, and at the start of the game, you each got one randomly, and they were numbered 1 through 36. And then at the start of each turn, you would gain a new attribute, uh, sort of drafting it in order of four that came out, because there were four players. Uh, the only rule was that you could take anything you wanted to, but if the numbers on one of the cards was adjacent to your actual number, like my card was number 17 and number 16 or 18 was in the market, you had to take that one. Other one otherwise, you had your first selection. And those cards kind of gave you bonus victory points based on different things you might do and different abilities throughout the game. And those abilities were actually pretty neat. And they sort of defined what our interactions were as the game went along. Unfortunately, the game itself, pretty boring. Just like put a worker down, resolve it, put a worker down, resolve it. Three times in the game, we got to like go to combat and fight, which is basically just comparing our stats and each of us rolling a d6, which was like climactic in the sense of the narrative that we were experiencing, but super boring outside the context of that. Like, I waited 45 minutes to roll a die and get some points, where I got a bad roll and I didn't get points, and there's nothing else I can do about it. Still, new game, glad I tried it, and the worker placement stuff was okay, card effects were okay, so interesting stuff. Uh, the last new game this week was Secret Hitler. We played this one at Melissa's house on Friday night after we had gone to Miniature Market and bought some stuff and come back. And uh, Melissa's cousin and friends and all sorts of folks were there at her house. So Cody and I, after putting together our prototypes for the weekend, got to jump in and play Secret Hitler. This game was designed by Mike Boxleader, Tommy Marangis, and Max Temkin. Apologies if I got those names incorrect. And it says self-published on BGG. I assume it's the same guys that did Cards Against Humanity. No publishing company listed. A couple things I want to talk about for Secret Hitler. First, I'm going to talk about the game itself. Then I'm going to talk about my experience interacting with the players. And then I'm going to talk about some impressions that I have of this game versus the Resistance, which it is very obviously similar to. So in Secret Hitler, you are two teams. And you don't know who's on which team, but you're split into two teams of fascists and liberals. Liberals are blue, fascists are red. There are more liberals than there are fascists, so if you've played the Resistance, then you know what this looks like, or if you've played Avalon. The fascist's goal is to elect some number of fascist policies, which means like to have their card chosen when it's time to do so, and the liberals' goal is the same. The fascists can also win if at any time in the second half of the game, uh, the player with the Hitler role, who's like a special role for the fascists, uh, is elected as the chairman. 
we played twice. The first game we played was a little broken because we got a couple rules wrong. The first round, first couple rounds, we didn't realize that uh, the fascists could only win if Hitler was elected chairman, but only in the second half of the game. So immediately I was like, well, I'm not going to vote anybody for chairman because the president gets to choose who becomes the next chairman. The president then draws three of these policies. There are six liberal policies, 11 fascist policies, and a deck, so it's weighted towards the fascist policies. But the president gets to choose, just to draw three, choose two of them to hand to the chairman, and then the chairman chooses one and chooses which one to enact. So two players, kind of a double-blind system as to what policies get enacted, and this is the method through which the game progresses. So with that rule wrong at first, we kind of stalled a little bit, and there was a second rule we got wrong in the first game, which is that uh, there's a limit to how many times players can be the president or can be the chairman consecutively. And uh, the good guys won the first game pretty handily because they were like, oh, well, these two people are obviously good. Let's just keep voting for them until the game ends. So we did that. It didn't work great. So the second time we played, we got all the rules right, played right, and the liberals still won in a landslide. Uh, I was a fascist in the first game. I was a liberal in the second game. And uh, we won on a landslide mostly because we figured out very quickly who the liberal players were, or at least we figured out which fascist players weren't playing very well or weren't willing to admit that they were fascists and make decisions that would have outed them. And we still just crushed it one-handedly. Part of that was a little bit distributive. Like, the policies came out of the deck in such a way that there was always a liberal choice whenever we needed one, so we never got stuck drawing three fascist policies. I think it happened, like, once, but it could happen lots of times in this game, especially the second time you go through the deck. But it didn't happen, and we won because of that. It was a pretty good experience, uh, aside from the nonsense that is the idea of Secret Hitler. Like, I find it so difficult to want to take on the role of Hitler. There's so many other ways to pronounce this theme that would make me more comfortable, but at the same time, if you're looking for the most possible offensive fascist thing you could be, Hitler is that, so like they're getting the theme correct for what they want to create, but it does make me a little uncomfortable, but everybody wanted to play it, so I played it. I don't know what to say about that beyond if it's not for you, it's not for you, and I certainly wouldn't judge anybody for not wanting to play it based on the title. Feels a little insensitive, bothers me a little bit, but still played. Talking about the players and the interactions. When you're playing, at least when I'm playing, a hidden role game, I think there are two ways that I can play, and there's probably a gray area in between, but there's two like types of play. The first is to play the game as an information management puzzle, which as it turns out is how I play most games. Having grown up playing Magic, this is like what I think about when I think about games. How much information do I have? How much information do you have? What information exists outside of the two of us, and how do I gather it? And how do we use that information to make the best possible choices over and over again until the game ends? Basically, how do I solve this information puzzle faster, more accurately than you do, so that I can win? That's one way to play hidden role games. The other way to play hidden role games is just as a group dynamic experience where you're just throwing shade at everybody, and I'm saying, you're a fascist, and you are saying, well, I'm a liberal, and you know that because I voted for this and he voted for that, and just to spin the most gregarious weave that you possibly can Toss accusations left and right, and get your voice out there. Of those two types of play, the first is really boring and not at all fun, even for the player who is solving the puzzles, unless they're completely willing to make an entire table of people sit there quietly while they solve problems. I have played games this way before. It sucks. It's like alpha gaming in a different environment, and it sucks. It's also the easiest way to win if you're playing as the liberals. If you were playing as the liberals, the thing that you absolutely have to do, or if you're playing as like 
the resistance in a game of resistance is get everyone just to sit quietly, listen to what everyone has to say, reason everything out, and don't let any statement go unnoticed. Don't let any information go past you. And if you do that, you almost 100% will win unless like a deck variance just screws you in some way that you can't predict, uh, which is possible in Secret Hitler because of the way that you draw these fascist tokens. And that's good design on their part to make that the case. The other way, throwing shade into all those things, that's like the way you want to play if you're a fascist because you need to get people to say things that make other players not trust them so you can hide behind that shade and generate this like weird sense of uncertainty. And if you don't do that, the liberals probably beat you because there's enough information that if they trust each other, they'll figure out who is who and then they'll win the game. All right, talking about my experience playing the game this time. The guy who was running the game was a nice guy. He brought the copy, beautiful copy, put it on the table, taught us how to play, a couple little snafus, but most, for the most part got it right, and got it right definitely for the second game, but was absolutely an alpha gamer. And I think the experience was mostly, mostly really rough because of two things. The first thing was being unwilling to let us experience the game, or at least to let me experience the game in the way that I'm used to. I was actually told, like, not to be such a nerd and talk as much while we were playing, which was really frustrating because, like, when I'm a fascist, I need to start, like, talking and throwing shade and figuring out what's up and, like, running out conversations and trying to solve the problem, but doing so in such a way that I can interject my own little bits and my own little pieces of misinformation that players will then latch onto. If I cannot do that as a fascist, the game is literally unplayable for me. Just completely unfun, cannot be experienced and enjoyed. Really, really frustrating. And this guy went so far as to actually, like, grab my shoulder and pull me back from the table in a small way that was like super controlling and made me super super physically uncomfortable i had not experienced that in a long time and i'm usually the alpha gamer in the group that i'm in if there's going to be one at all and i try to use that mantle of presumed authority to make sure everyone has a great time by specifically allowing players the time and space to play the game however they want to and encouraging them to like get into their character and like throw words around and bandy about their accusations and make sure that they have the space and time to do that. The guy who was running our game for us did not and in fact sort of like stepped on toes and made sure people played it the way that he thought it was supposed to be played. It was really uncomfortable and it almost made me not want to play a second time but I wanted to see the game work the way it was supposed to from start to finish and make sure that it was played correctly and that I knew how to talk about it afterwards. So we played a second game where I was a liberal and rather than fight that behavior, because I was a liberal, I now wanted to play the quiet information management game, and I knew that if I just sat there and let him run the table in the way the experience went, that my team would win no matter what. As it turned out, he was also a liberal, which was really nice, um, because the game ended, everyone was mostly quiet the entire time, the decisions were made by group, which means that I made suggestions and people followed along with him, and that was that, and we won. So I really have no idea how to talk to this game. I would play it again. And if you have a chance to play it, and you're not offended by the material, and you're in a safe place where other people wouldn't be offended by the material, then I encourage you to give it a try, because it was exciting. Um, and I could see how it would be very exciting with the right group. The group that I played it with really made it work less for me. Last thing to talk about on Secret Hitler is, compared to the resistance, how this game works. So uh, Max Timken, one of the co-designers of this game, did Werewolf previously, which was a, an upgraded version of Mafia. And Cards Against Humanity, an upgraded version of Apples to Apples. Uh, he has a reputation, whether it's fair or not, for taking other people's designs and developing them into games that are more popular, more fun, etc. Uh, Secret Hitler is a straight improvement on the Resistance, I think. It uses fewer components, 
the roles are easier to understand, and the number of steps required to get from the start of the turn to the part of the turn where decisions are being made is significantly smaller. In the resistance, I had to pass out some number of guns based on the number of players that were in the game. We had to vote on whether or not they would get them, and then those players had to choose pass or fail, and then put those cards back. We had to randomize them to see who was going to see, like, to make sure that we didn't know who put in what, so we didn't out anybody, then reveal them, then resolve it, and move on. In Secret Hitler, we just say, I nominate this person as chairperson, or because as chairman, because I'm the president. If everyone says pass or fail, then that person gets some cards from me that I have drawn. They choose one, boom, we move on. So it's faster, it's tighter. The variance from the card draw being mostly pushed almost two-thirds of the way towards fascism means that bad things might happen even when both good players are involved, which means there's now a mechanistic way for misinformation to get into the game's information economy without players having to purposely choose to put it there, which makes the game much more interesting to play as a fascist. Because as soon as one of those things happen, it can just be bad luck, and suddenly, boom, you have an in to start talking about how somebody is a fascist, even though you know they're not. And that's a really exciting thing when you're playing from the standpoint of the bad guys who are outmanned. Um, so yeah, good game. It, definitely better than The Resistance. I would prefer it. I would buy it if it wasn't called Secret Hitler. Um, and who knows, maybe someday that will bother me less, and I will. But uh, today is not that day. Alright, so the rest of the games that I played this weekend were games that I had played before. Uh, the first game we played upon arriving at Melissa's place was Karuba. Uh, even before we played Sushi Go, I busted it out because I wanted to teach her because it's exactly the kind of game that I thought she would love. And as it turns out, she did. We had a great time playing, me, Melissa, and Cody. Uh, it was her first game, it was Cody's first game, and it was my, I don't know, 10th game, something like that. And Cody won, I think. No, I won, but Cody was close, and Melissa was kind of like in a distant third. And it was so cool to watch the two of them uh, put together their boards. In Karuba, you are placing tiles that have different pathways on them and creating these paths so that your little adventurers can walk along them and get to the temples that are across the board that match their color. And the game is all about using one tile to be a part of multiple pathways for multiple different adventurers and then discarding the rest of your tiles to move them along as efficiently as possible. And then also there's a little bit of predicting which ones your opponents are going to go for so you can go to the other ones so that both of you sort of get to your own first because there's a bonus for getting to the temple first. It's five points, and four points, and three points, and two points, etc. So you totally want to prioritize, like, efficiency in path building. And I think that is the kind of thing that people who do a lot of game design, like Cody and myself, sort of naturally gravitate to, because it's not that different from thinking about how to build elegant systems when you're making, like, a card game or something. How to combine different effects that they uh, both are similar and are also different in interesting ways, but that you get multiple things done with the same component set or with the same rule set. So Cody did pretty well. Uh, Melissa had some trouble, like, optimal pathing, but it was still cool to watch her play, and she still enjoyed it. Uh, and I think that if we played it again, she would have gotten it. I've observed many times in Karuba, the first game a person plays, they have to, like, get used to the idea of how pathways work and stuff, because they don't, like, necessarily feel comfortable projecting what the final version is going to look like when they place their first piece. And then halfway through the game, they're like, oh, man, I wish I could redo all this, because now I get it, and then their second game, they're great. So I imagine that would be the case. We played the turn-based version of Captain Sonar with the same group we played Secret Hitler with. We'd played it earlier in the evening before we started working on our prototypes. It was me and Cody and two of Melissa's friends against Melissa and her cousin and a couple of her other friends, and her cousin was the captain. And uh, we taught everyone how to play. Only Cody or I had played before, and Cody had only played once at Gen Con. And uh, it was your basic sub-battle. We played on the normal like alpha map where you've got your four quadrants, and we played the turn-based version, which so is a smaller map, and you've got plenty of time to adjust to your jobs. Uh, I've talked about... Captain Sonar, I think, three out of four weeks now on the show, so I'm not going to go too much into it. Listen to previous episodes, I think, one and two, if you want to hear more about it. But I will say that it was a cool experience to see the degree to which players wanted player autonomy when they were new to a game. 
Uh, some of Melissa's friends I would describe as being fairly casual game players. They were like there for the socialization and were kind of getting into the game. But at the same time, if we'd just been watching a movie or just hanging out talking about books or eating dinner, I think they would have been just as comfortable. I definitely would not have called them hardcore gamers. Uh, and they seemed very comfortable just to like let us sort of like direct the pathway of how to play, sort of like let them know what kind of choices we wanted them to make or what they should be making. And they were comfortable like with making decisions in their own little zones. And that was very cool to see. Actually, Melissa was on my team. She was our engineer. So sorry, Melissa was on our team. Me, Cody, Melissa, and her friend versus her cousin and three of her friends. And I really appreciate that as a captain that I got to sort of let players have the amount of autonomy that they wanted because sometimes in team games, especially if we're playing real-time, which we weren't, if I'm the good player or the player who's played before, I have to kind of hope that the players who haven't played before don't like overstep their bounds and make bad choices thinking that they know what's happening when they don't. And that's kind of a jerky way to say, like, well, if I'm prioritizing winning, then I want to make sure all my players' teammates make the best choices. Uh, for this experience, I just wanted to facilitate it and let everyone sort of learn how to play and see what happened. Uh, mine and Cody's teams lost. We got shot first, and as a result, we kind of lost the, like, shoot-back-and-forth thing. Um, there was some noise talked afterwards, which I was surprised by, because it happened so infrequently in teaching games in the groups that I play in, like at Nerd Night and on Thursday Nights at Collected, uh, and even like at conventions and stuff. It happens so infrequently that like, people talk noise about game results because we play so many games. So if there's some noise talking, it sort of happens ironically, or like kind of as a joke, like, I got you, man, all right, let's play again. But it was like real, and I was like, oh, well, this is the kind of group we've got right here. And we didn't get to play any more games like that, because uh, we had to go make our prototypes that I kind of wish that we had, because, you know, if I get riled up, I get a little bit competitive, and I'm super willing to go down and talk a little more noise. All right, the last game we played was uh, Codenames. Played it twice. This was at Jamie's Design Day as well. Codenames, great, as always. Uh, funny story from this one. The last clue of the second game, we had a clue giver who'd never played before, but she was doing a fantastic job giving clues. And the clue she gave us was Indie 2, spelled I-N-D-Y. And we immediately realized that it needed to be Lap for the Indie 500. And the next, we touched the card and it was our color, and the other team had like one card left, so this was like our do-or-die moment to get this right. And there was another word out there, wall. And I said, oh, man, that's funny. Wall, like a brick wall, like the bricks that you kiss at the Indy 500. And I kind of dismissed that because it was a bit of a stretch, and we ended up catching something else and being wrong. And after the game, it turns out that it was exactly what our person was going for, lap and wall. And we were like, oh, man, that would have been so perfect. And then me and Cody spent the next 18 hours figuring out what clues you would put for lap and wall, like endurance maybe or like racing or like how do you run a race on a wall i don't know but that was a cool moment in codenames which is a game that provides tons of them and we introduced a bunch of players to the game and it was really exciting played that game with my buddy charles uh, charles wright who's a game designer and a super super cool guy so uh shout out to charles if you're listening to this thanks for playing codenames and for teaching the big group so that for once i got to play codenames and i didn't have to do the teaching which was pretty exciting all right everybody come back next week for episode five uh we should play kimmet and Mexico this week, games that I've wanted to play in previous weeks but haven't had a chance to yet. And uh, I also got Secession from Castle Productions and Randover Games in the mail from Kickstarter. I'm hoping to get that to the table, too, as quickly as I can. And I've got a bit of a hankering for Game of Thrones, the uh, second edition, the big board game. And I'm thinking maybe I might be able to sneak that in Sunday after the Rangers game, but we'll see. I guess you guys will find out uh, in the next episode. So thanks, everybody, and uh, enjoy your week of gaming.